Today, you will hear a bonus business breakdown borrowed from the newest Colossus series, Return on India. Sahil Gol, founder of ShipRocket, joins Ramin Sheth to break down the business. And as one of the fastest growing technology businesses in India, ShipRocket is worthy of its own breakdown. But to me, this episode really captured a theme that appears across our breakdowns. Replicating business models from one geography to another introduces many unexpected challenges. And ShipRocket captures that firsthand for India. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Return on India feed on your preferred podcast player. And check out joincolossus.com for full episode transcripts and supporting materials. On to the show. Welcome to Return on India, a deep dive series covering one of the most populous and promising economies in the world. Through conversations with central figures in Indian business, Return on India will unpack the details that matter for investors and operators. We will examine the unique cultural dynamics behind emerging demographic trends, and we will drill into key sectors by talking to the business leaders driving change. We plan to investigate the past, present, and future as we explore India's investment case. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Sahil Goyal, founder and CEO of ShipRocket. Over the last decade, a number of startups that have reached escape velocity in India have followed the X for Y startup model. They've taken influence from something that works in the US and Western markets and applied it to India. The next generation of winners will build native India use cases, and ShipRocket is a perfect example. The business started out as Shopify for India and eventually pivoted to an e-commerce logistics aggregator when they realized the underlying infrastructure that made Shopify successful in the West didn't exist in India. Fast forward, and ShipRocket is one of the fastest growing and most well-positioned technology companies in India today. We unpacked how to build for India from India, how to capture value from India's long-tail merchant segment, which is over 60 million businesses, and the common headline pitfalls investors fall into when evaluating startups in India. Please enjoy my conversation with Sahil Goyal. Sahil, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Ramin. Pleasure to be here today. I'm really excited for this discussion. We're going to talk about the e-commerce juggernaut you guys are building at ShipRocket. But before we dive into ShipRocket, I want to go back a bit to the first iteration, CartRocket, that you guys started in 2012. Not only was it the path of discovery to get to the current state iteration, but I think the backdrop of the Indian landscape itself has changed significantly over the last 10 years. And so that historical context, I think, will be really interesting to explore as we talk through the business and its evolution. So maybe as a starting point, help us understand what Cart Rocket was and the premise that inspired it. It's definitely been a very interesting 10 years. You know, when we think back to early days for the company, I had worked at Walmart for a bit and had been observing Amazon and stuff that was happening in the US. And as an avid web developer myself, I chanced upon Shopify in 2011. And they were still meaningful, but they were, I mean, compared to what they are now, they were very early back then. And I fell in love with how simple they had built the interface, how simply they were focused on solving just one thing, which was getting people to build their web carts, their shopping carts in a few clicks. As I thought about India and I thought about the long tail of micro SMEs, the independent businesses, the amount of economy that they drove, I think it became clear, at least in my head, that long term India wasn't going to be all about big box retail, whether it was online or offline. And merchants will need a toolkit to be able to do this successfully. And given that I used to build websites, I think I just looked at what Shopify was doing and that was it. We said, well, we should do this for India. No one was really doing it. That's pretty much all it took for us to launch. And hence the name Cart Rocket, because we were building shopping carts. It was a DIY solution, very heavily modeled and inspired by Shopify including the pricing and the free trial period, because we just saw it work in the US. And that's sort of the first inkling for any founder to say, look, it's working. It's going to work in India as well. 
I think very early into the journey, we started finding that a bunch of stuff wasn't working. For example, you couldn't build apps for doing payments and shipping just because they weren't there. We had to first get the offline world to respond to say, look, I need to find a gateway payments provider who can seamlessly give accounts to merchants, get it live in 48 hours, and be willing to work in this model with us. And on shipping as well, it was a huge challenge because a lot of the providers then just didn't even know what e-commerce was. Kind of getting the ground ecosystem to align was much harder than actually building the tech. But that got us going to some extent. We struggled with the subscription billing because that wasn't and still isn't to some extent a very well understood pricing model in India. Just the whole do-it-yourself model doesn't work purely because of the labor cost in India. It's easier to hire someone to do it for you. And merchants, they don't want to spend any time doing any of this stuff themselves. So through the journey, we did scale. We took it to about a million dollars in revenue in ARR, you know, got about a thousand odd merchants to work with us, became market leaders with those kind of metrics back in the day. But really, we were missing the plot, you know, because we knew there was a universe of at least 5 million addressable out of the 50, 60 million businesses that were out there. And we just weren't able to even reach them, forget sign them up. And I think that started to pose a ton of questions in our head, just in terms of are we even in the right space? Does India even need this? But then we'd fall back to first principles on saying that, look, eventually people are going to have to sell direct. That's just the way the Indian demographic culture, etc. is built. We just don't have the right product. That got us to think deeper and deeper about what it is that we wanted to do. And one of the things that started happening is we started noticing a humongous adoption on social media, You know, whether it's Facebook or WhatsApp, later Instagram. We also started seeing a lot of retrofitting of use cases where I'm talking about Facebook when there was no semblance of price or catalog. It was just posts, pictures. But we'd see a bunch of these products and people commenting, saying, I want to buy it. And then they'd share their number and the buyer would call up the merchant and they would just, I guess, be closing transactions. So we started thinking really hard and figured that, look, commerce is happening. You know, it's probably happening a very unstructured way. And how do we try and structure some of this? which led us to a pivot on our product where we kind of took Cart Rocket and built it for mobile. We said, okay, let's go mobile first. This is 20, late 13, early 14 timeframe. And a lot of people thought we were crazy because building a website from a mobile just seemed wrong. Everyone said, well, if you don't have a laptop or a desktop, why do you want to build a website? And for us, it was not so much of the website than publishing the catalog that could be consumed by somebody. So that was the thinking we were chasing And we started by trying to build the mobile app. We tried to have a ready payments interface, a ready shipping interface. Soon we added ways to share your products with your friends on social, run ads on Facebook. So we built the whole stack over a period of time. And I think for the first time in our journey, we actually saw that we were able to get tens of thousands of people to sign up, tens of thousands of merchants to upload at least one picture of their product. And that to us was a big win because we finally understood that, okay, this is where the market's at. And this is where the real Indian SMB is sitting out of. And this is the kind of interface that will work with them. And then, of course, we can talk more about some sort of the other learnings. That was early days for us. And this was really the first Eureka that kind of ultimately led to us thinking about ShipRocket as a value creator. There's a lot of lessons there. I want to double click into just the pivot from Cart Rocket to ShipRocket. And so it's kind of captured actually by the name. You talked about the genesis of Cart Rocket, and obviously ShipRocket has an emphasis on shipping. So you shifted from focus on the storefront to shipping and payments. It seems like a really subtle shift, especially for those in the West or kind of outside and looking at the business model. But I'd love for you to double click on the importance of focusing on that segment of the value chain as the entry point to the progress that you were just discussing or alluding to. Honestly speaking, as we were building this sort of Shopify on the mobile product, we started getting all of these requests from merchants saying that, look, I generate all of these orders outside of your platform. And I can do it because my buyers place them over the phone on WhatsApp and whatnot, but I don't have a way to ship them. When we had built Craftly, which was our mobile first platform, we realized that the carrier landscape in India, just it wasn't there for this segment. Either the newer age tech driven logistics companies were being built to serve the likes of Amazon, or you had your neighborhood regional carriers, which just 
they aren't good and the postal system was not even in the picture to be honest so there was a huge catch 22 where indian long tail merchants had demand early days of demand but they had demand but they had no real way to actually ship it they were struggling to ship their stuff they didn't know who to use they couldn't collect any cash on delivery and cash on delivery was literally invented by flipkart in india which is now walmart and all of this stuff just wasn't accessible to them so they didn't have a chance to be honest but they were still doing it that was the beauty they were still thriving they were still using digital to whatever capacity they could and they were trying to drive their business and as they started writing to us the shipping platform we had built for our overall platform was modeled for the long tail it was modeled within the ecosystem we didn't have the money to go and build like amazon or build like a logistics operator but instead we used them as a ecosystem partner and built a whole bunch of workflow and tech around it and merchants specifically started requests for that they started telling us that look i have the rest figured out I don't care about the catalog or the demand i got payments it's okay i just need a way to ship and when that noise became louder and louder i think we really took a step back and started to think about you know what it is that is of value in what we've built truly why are people wanting to use us and that over time obviously became ship rocket first as a small pilot in 2016 and then the entire company as quickly as end of 2017 what we realized was that if you can't send your stuff if you can't receive money for your stuff at the customer's doorstep you can't do e-commerce that is e-commerce and we kept thinking that the problem lied in digitizing the catalog building that shopping cart better ux and embedding pixels and what we realized is that merchants actually didn't care because they said look this i've got figured out if i am a large merchant i can hire an agency there are platforms available to help me do this if i am a micro merchant my phone gallery is enough because my phone gallery has pictures i've got whatsapp i've got my customer database on my phone i should don't need anything else but really the moment of truth is i still got to make my goods reach the buyer so we understood that no matter where the transactions happen goods still have to move they are going to converge into this funnel and for this independent business market no one's doing it and that eureka kind of gave us the confidence to go full force behind the product and then like i said by 2018 we shut everything else off we just pivoted it's interesting to hear the story style the way you framed it because i think it speaks to a pretty deep nuance and common pitfall that companies in emerging markets fall into a lot of companies in emerging markets india especially try to replicate models and playbooks of us companies in their own markets and this is kind of the famed idea of building x for y the problem though is the dynamics of the market are fundamentally different and so often those models either don't work or they have a defined upper bound you've alluded to some of the pieces here on certainly what makes the model in india look different than in the us but i'm curious when you take a even further step back and you think about the market structure in the us when e-commerce really took off versus the market structure of india what are some of the differences that can help us understand further why us models just don't work in india so i think if you break down the dynamic into two things there is the actual available infrastructure let's call it it could be ground or software infrastructure what's available in the ecosystem and then there is the technology and the workflow and the automation both of those things are fundamentally different in india and i'll describe how for our business if you think about how e-commerce took off in the us e-commerce started with catalog back in the day where you could literally receive catalogs in the mail you could pick up the phone dial a number and you would get products and that soon evolved into third party fulfillment not tech driven but just the model of third party fulfillment where merchants would not want to keep goods themselves that then evolved into the web with powerful consumer credit that evolved into the web with very powerful payments very good shipping that was there for a long time very good road infrastructure and very deep consumer pockets all of those things were there when e-commerce took off in the united states in india we've once skipped many steps we've kind of leapfrogged into some of these things we kind of skipped the whole desktop piece entirely we skipped the structured commerce piece entirely we had our physical infrastructure as well as the ecosystem around logistics being built as e-commerce was nascent and starting to grow so that creates a very different kind of a landscape where there's all kinds of awareness that needs to be created credit is still underpenetrated if you ask me in india payments are at a decent stage now but not 10 years ago or 5 years ago 
logistics continues to be a challenge on the ground as well as and there was no software literally no software we should come back to why there is no software in india because that alone is a very interesting dynamic but if you do this compare and contrast you'll appreciate that it's very different you know indian merchants willingness to pay is probably in many cases lower than what a us consumer is willing to pay for things indian consumers don't want to pay for anything they want to get the best but they don't want to pay indian merchants don't want to pay for software they want to pay for service so how do you build a scalable business in that kind of environment which doesn't turn out to be a services lifestyle business those are the key things as i reflect back which make the markets so different from each other that no us model or no european model can be juxtaposed on the indian market i mean it could work for like maybe a 0.1% of the market but that's it it's not fundamentally built for india and i think now there's just so much awareness given some models have scaled and worked in india that there is lot of opportunity to build grounds up for india talk a little bit more about the lack of software i think that's an interesting idea that will be interesting for folks to hear it's a really important one you know because we tried to answer that question for a good 5 years of our 10 years saying why is there no software then we understood why because people don't want to pay for software they just don't believe it's worth it because in the us if a full time employee costs you i don't know an average of $50000 or $40000 in india it's 100 that cost in many cases so a software can then only command like 10% of that which doesn't make any economic sense and by virtue people just don't understand the value of software that much now what they do understand is things that can impact their top line merchants almost always will take a look at want to invest in stuff behind that can help them grow their business they almost always want to touch and feel explore everything that can help them save cost i know it sounds fairly trivial but that's literally the a to z of the merchant mind so what we learned is that the reason there is no software because people are trying to sell it like software and we had built software that we eventually didn't sell we just gave it away and said that look we'll have to find a alternate way to make money people want the software but they don't want it enough to pay for it so one has to find a way to platformize it a way to kind of offer other things that help you make money so that as a company you have the incentive to scale and sustain but pure software being sold to indian merchants and even now you'll find that there is a new crop that's buying some of this stuff but that's still not mass i mean it may get there in the next 20 years but it's a pretty hard journey upwards one of the pieces that i find interesting just in the way you're describing software sales in general it's not just bottoms up the differences in the indian ecosystem and the us ecosystem to build the right shipping solution or the right e-commerce solution but it's also about finding the business model that's curated for the ecosystem and the environment so in the us you would pay for saas but in india and this is a very common model i'd say even for indian saas companies that are successful in the domestic market versus indian saas companies that are successful in the external market in the external market it's a normal enterprise software playbook in the indian market what you find is software is given for free and you monetize on things like transactions or something else correct and i think the cultural context partly what i said is for example we don't have a home depot in india because we don't put up our walls we don't do that stuff it's just not in our dna we'll almost always pay someone to do it and the labor cost arbitrage is a primary driver because it's kind of how all of that cycle is designed so i think that's one key reason where people don't want to pay for automation because it just doesn't save them any money they don't want to save money because what they'll save is almost always not worth the software company's time to build the software and then it's a vicious cycle and from a consumer point of view i think we are okay with not being served we are not demanding if we are not served but if we are served then we want everything and we don't want to pay for it so i think it's a weird dynamic where there's a segment of the market which is not service at all think about rural commerce huge opportunities will take long time that's the next billion users in india lots of action happening around it if you can get your goods there even if it reaches in 7 days it's fine but if you're in the city and you don't get it the next day today consumers throw a tantrum but if you ask them to pay to get it the next day then there's options you can switch so it's like a pretty polarized gradient in the expectations and hence for any provider is challenging because it's like so many indias in one that is very very hard to try and take care of everything but that's also the opportunity on the flip side 
We talked about this kind of concept in one of the episodes in the series of the idea that outside in, especially from the West, you think about India, you look at the headline numbers, and the conclusion is, hey, this is a massive market. There's over a billion people, et cetera. When you actually double click, though, and you look into India, it's extremely heterogeneous. And there's different ways to think about the market. You know, One way to think about the market is this concept of there's India 1, India 2, and India 3. And the challenges of building across those chasms is just fundamentally different because in and of itself, you know, they're their own countries and their own consumer bases. When you guys think about building the company, I'd say the vast majority of startups that have succeeded in India have really focused on that India 1 or India 1A group. And that's, I think, why a lot of the models have typically been X for Y, because that consumer class is most like Westerners. But you guys are not building for India 1 or India 1A. Typically, the logic outside in has been, there's no money to be made. You can't build a sustainable business. Those next billion users will come online eventually, but maybe it's 5 years, 10 years, 25 years from now. You guys have kind of flipped that on its head. So maybe just talk about that a little bit more or how you think about addressing that segment of the market. You're absolutely right. There is a segment one of India, which where you can do some X or Y stuff. You still need to localize it, but broad fundamentals can potentially work. But really, I think what we figured out was our market didn't lie there. Our market was in tier two, three, four, both on the demand and the supply side. And for the first five years, we kept trying to change the market. We kept trying to educate the user saying, this is how it should be done, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think we flipped our thinking entirely to say, look, let's not educate them. Let's educate us. You know, Let's see how they conduct business today. Let's model ourselves to be useful to them. So that was the first step, just pure PMF. Shiprocket, I mean, is a great example of that. In the West, for example, I don't think a Shiprocket would be born. I mean, retrospect now, could we go and do things there? Definitely, because there's more learnings. But I don't think one can create a Shiprocket in a market like the US because the problem statements are just so different. And then apart from product market fit, I think just the whole thinking around how do you make money? When we launched the business in its third avatar, which is Shiprocket, we learned by dealing with the long tail that, for example, you can't collect money. You just can't. You can't run after people to collect a dollar. It's impossible. And logistics and shipping and carrier movement, express parcel, all of these industries are by definition, either you pay over the counter to a human being or you postpaid. There is no sort of wallet or none of that stuff existed when we launched. But our keen learning was that, look, we don't care if we get 1% of the market. The point is, if we can't collect it, then we don't have it. So we made it entirely prepaid. We built a wallet system to say, look, you got to load your wallet and then spend for shipping from the wallet. Because we also don't have auto debit. Remember that. We have no way to debit your card post facto. So we got to make sure that we are collecting money upfront. And that one piece, that one insight alone, gave us the legs and the cash flow to survive the next year and the next year and so on. And there were several other innovations like that. We started looking at interfaces built by Facebook pages, by the travel apps, you know, by OLX to understand that, well, how are these guys driving self-serve? While our sort of cart rocket experiment had failed in self-serve, a lot of these apps were still being used by users, whether they were individuals or mini businesses. That sort of insight also gave us a way to really capture and solve that next problem of saying, look, I can't send salespeople, or I can't even get on a call with you, in fact. In fact, surprisingly enough, when we launched the first version, we even took out support. Kind of dumb to think about it in retrospect. That was actually a bad move. But initially, we just said no support. That's it. Like you use it. It's going to be a great internet business. We won't do any support. <laughs> and then within three months, like, oh, wait, wait, hold on. We've gone too far off. And then we added chat support first, built a bot first. So we kind of had to build this from day one, keeping in mind that now that we understand this user base, we need to put them at the center of our product thinking and business model thinking and build for them. We removed the SaaS. Our entire software was free. So the first traction we got was from a lot of the mid-market merchants saying, oh, you know, this company, Shiprocket, they're letting you connect all your channels and you can look at all your inventory, all your orders and all your analytics for free. Reality is, yes, that was free, but to ship, you had to pay. We we're okay with that because that stuff was not selling for SaaS anyway. So I think it's really about really going back to the canvas and then thinking that what exactly is it that merchants need here? What are they willing to pay for? And how do you make money as a business? You know, by stripping away the SaaS, we made sure that we would make money when they would make money with something which is consumer-like in nature. There was automatically very high churn in logo, 
because it was super easy to walk in, super easy to walk out. But at the same time, as you did more and more with us, more and more services unlocked, more and more support unlocked, more and more features unlocked and so on. And we made more and more money because we were metered. We would build, make money on transactions. So our cohorts in two years were looking like 200%, which we had never seen in the history of our company. Our conversion rates on signups were as high as 18%, 15%, which we had never seen in the history of the company or in India. I think building fundamentally for a certain segment of the user, I think really helped us. And we were razor sharp on saying we only want to serve only the long tail. Of course, we expanded later, like for the first two years, two and a half years of doing ShipRocket, we were clear that we will not go after the large guys because fundamentally the pricing pressure is too high over there. Here, we are bringing so much into their lives that we control the price. We are able to drive more margins. We are able to control our costs. We automated all of our support so that our gross margins and contribution margins were high. We automated the onboarding so our CACs were intact, built a ton of content, ton of sort of organic hacks to drive marketing, you know, referral, a lot of YouTube marketing. I think all of that had to come together, you know, in many ways to prove to us that can we even make money here? To your point, if we did not do all of these things, we probably would have faltered in one or the other place. And then we would have maybe shut down or given up or lost hope. Talk a little bit more about the courier aggregation piece, because I think there's an interesting insight there, which is basically structurally, how do you turn this into a sustainable business model? And how do you actually capture the values? You know, the skeptic kind of listening to this would say, the insight of starting with shipping makes sense. There's not a question once you get to that insight that you can build a product maybe that people like and people will use. But the skeptic would say, well, Sahil, how do you actually capture the value? How do you actually, as a business model, may have great top-line metrics of growth, but is this actually a sustainable business model where you can ever make money? And I think the courier aggregation piece is a pretty important part of that story. So maybe talk about that a little bit more. Obviously, we've since launched, now I've diversified into building other parts of the stack as well that we can talk about later. But let me talk about shipping first, because that's kind of how we launch. And that continues to be a fairly large part of what we do here. So if you think about the carrier landscape in India, there's either Amazon, Flipkart building their own carriers, who are also partners, by the way, on our network now. There are carriers that were built to service Amazon and Flipkart and the larger outfits, the larger enterprises. And then you've got the mom and pop retail guys who are non-tech, regional, no cash on delivery, like just slow. So they're not really e-commerce shippers or e-commerce contenders. And unlike the US where you could walk into a FedEx store, suboptimal because you had to walk there, but at least you had an option. You could drop it off nationwide, you could do next day, you could pay for it, you can do five day, four day, ground, air, priority, whatever. We didn't have that option. Like That option was not there in India at all. There was a point. So as we initially launched, it was actually just about access. It wasn't even about aggregation. It wasn't even about anything else. It was about saying, well, I've got all this demand from this nature of merchant. These guys can't talk to the carriers because they don't want to talk to them. There is no API. None of that stuff is there. So how do these guys begin? So in the beginning, it was just about saying, okay, we can get you access because we can combine your demand, go to these guys, become the agent, if you will, and we'll coordinate on your behalf on the commercials, on the SOPs, on the SLAs, and we'll get you the commercials and charge a spread on that. But over time, and I think there's some chicken and egg happening here because Today, when we survey our merchants and ask them where were they shipping before us, nearly 60% say that they weren't. They just started their business on us. And four years ago, this number was 90% said, I was using such and such carrier, but now I'm using you. So clearly, we've done a lot to get this market online by being available there. And as we started getting towards slightly larger merchants, you know, transacting maybe a couple of thousand transactions a month, they started really building the platform much better because for them, it was no longer just about access. They wanted to have the whole breadth of the carrier network in India. You know, India's got about 19,000 serviceable PIN codes. Not everyone serves everything, first of all. Not everyone can pick up from everywhere. Not everyone can deliver everywhere. Not everyone offers cash on delivery everywhere. That's just the coverage to begin with. Then you've got different modes. You've got local, national, air, surface. You know, you've got heavy, you've got parcel, you've got documents. And then you've got quality and you've got speed, and you've got price, and you've got how well can somebody resolve issues, how soon can they do it, what SLAs are, do they offer, do they give refunds, try and put all of this in an Excel. And even then you can't solve it because it's just too much of a decision to make. And then how do you deal with so many carriers together? 
How do you get their APIs? The APIs keep breaking, changing. How do you even make sense of the tracking messages? What do they mean? How do you trigger workflows on the tracking messages if you don't know what they mean? And as a merchant, really do, when I get up every day, am I thinking about this or am I thinking about how I market better, merchandise better, source better, and so on? There were several benefits in building this aggregation model where we kind of built it as a three-pronged model. We said, we'll do first all of the API integrations. We'll standardize this. We'll standardize the experience. Wherever we felt that the actual underlying experience wasn't standardized, we would step in and decouple it. For example, different carriers would pay merchants on different times for cash on delivery. So you could potentially get 90% of your money on day 10 or day 7. But there could be this 1, 2, 5% long tail that for some reason doesn't hit you till day 30. Now, as a merchant who's a small business, one, I'll have to follow up. Two, I can't reconcile this. Three, I've not got my money. So we actually came in and said, look, we'll standardize all of this. One, as a larger entity, we can push our suppliers to work on better SOPs and SLAs with us. Two, wherever we are not able to deliver the service from the supplier, we'll deliver it. So that at least as the end merchant, you're not having to worry about all of these things. You work with us, you get a seamless level of experience, seamless level of service, and we let you pick who you want to use. We'll let you decide based a bunch of data points for each pair of pickup and drop zip codes or pin codes for every packet. We'll recommend who to use. We'll show you all the quality metrics. We'll show you by predicting exactly when it can reach your consumer through our data as one of the decision factors. We'll tell your consumers when it's reaching them so they are not calling you. And it builds trust both between us and the merchant, between the carrier and the merchant, as well as between the merchant and the consumer by us sitting in between and kind of orchestrating this entire thing. And so why aren't the large carriers, couriers, et cetera, that are in the country, they've got massive infrastructure. There's a lot of challenges with shipping, payment, et cetera, in India. We've talked about some of that in this conversation, but there is a lot that's working. Why are those guys not attacking this space successfully? They are two fundamentally different businesses. If as CEO of a logistics company, what is my top metric? I want to go further. I want to go faster. That's what I'm thinking about as a logistics operator. As an e-commerce enabler, all I'm thinking about is number of active merchants and ARPU per merchant. That very fact changes how one executes. If I'm a logistics company, I want any and every demand because I've invested in CapEx. I've got rents to pay. I don't care if it comes at the razor thin margins. I still want it because I need to fill my pipe. That's just the way I think. So where am I naturally going to go and put most of my time behind the fattest demand pipes versus somebody like us who's completely asset light? will only and only think about the merchant saying, okay, how do I represent the merchant? How do I give them the whole stack of the ecosystem in one place by partnering? And what else can I do to improve their experience, improve their attention, improve their consumer NPS, improve their consumer repeat rates, and so on. So I think the approach and the GTM is so different that our product stack that comes out and the merchants interact with and use is just not comparable, number one. Number two, it is not possible to use only one carrier in India and make it work. You need, unlike the US, in the US, I do believe you could be using a DHL, a FedEx, maybe the other guys, and you would have a relatively similar level of service. So it's not so much about being able to switch over or fail over amongst various carriers. There it is more about automation. But in India, there's an added complexity of saying, well, I need to be a hybrid supply chain partner where you need to use mix match of carriers in different zones, in different times of the month, in different kinds of orders, and then put intelligence on what to do when. So you almost need a middleware to say, look, someone's going to have to decide this. And third, India logistics has tons of disputes, starting from the pickup to SLA breaches, to weight being different for different packets, to having something big monster called RTO in India, which is returned to origin when shipments basically fail to deliver. We can talk about it more. But as you think about all of these things happening in the supply chain, as a merchant, how do you deal with this? Do you send emails to various carriers and then follow up on them? How do you keep track of all this? So I think the problem is very, very deep. It is an apples to oranges problem where you've got all of these providers who do a you know, great job in certain lanes at certain times for certain kinds of shipments. But then you need this other software slash service that can automate all of this, bring you a templatized single rate card in a single place and take care of all of your issues through one window. And I think that's kind of the role we continue to play, which is why as a merchant, if I'm going to pay the same 
as I would pay the carrier, I would rather just use one place where I can get everything than be dependent on sort of just one carrier and then get stuck and then, you know, be at their mercy. Unpack RTO a little bit more. I think that'll be an interesting kind of basis for folks to really kind of understand the nuance of the challenge here, because I want you to explain it maybe in two ways or the way I'm thinking about it, at least is there's kind of the concept of what RTO is, but there's the second element, which is just the sense of scale of the challenge specifically in India, because I think a lot of what you're talking about, Sahil, about middleware, the utility of software, et cetera, it really comes to life when you understand this core concept of RTO and what's going on in India specifically. India did a great innovation when it introduced cash on delivery, but along with it came this, as I described it, this monster that we call RTO. It's like a failed delivery, right? Where So imagine you check out on Shopify or whatever website, you actually don't pay anything as a consumer. All you do is you pick a mode saying, okay, I want to pay cash on delivery. And that order goes to the merchant, the merchant packs it, the carrier takes it, reaches a consumer doorstep, and for some reason, can't deliver. And when that happens, you've just lost a ton of money because that order is going to come back. You paid double the freight, both forward and reverse. You haven't made a sale. Your stuff is sitting in the supply chain for, I don't know, 10 days. And you've trained your Facebook pixel wrong, by the way, because you told Facebook this was a sale, but it wasn't. So there's a whole bunch of issues around it. And to further go into why this is happening, it's actually a very interesting combination of two or three things. There is one which is just pure buyer intent. You know, I was impulsive to like something. I said I wanted it, but now I don't want it because I have no commitment to take it, right? I wanted it till yesterday, but you guys didn't deliver till yesterday. So I don't want it. So we see an inverse correlation between the speed of delivery and RTO, direct inverse correlation, right? The faster you get it there, the lower the RTO because the impulse is still, I guess, fresh in the consumer's mind. There are issues with address in India. India doesn't have codified addresses like the US where they are not in a certain format. It could be right by such and such landmark. That's it. And that could be a good address, but it may not be. So how do you know? And it's very expensive to learn by waiting to kind of send your parcel and then have it come back. That's another big challenge. And the third is that there are also issues at the ground. The carrier network itself may have a lot of noise where the delivery agent tries to call the consumer. The consumer doesn't answer the phone. The agent says the consumer wasn't available. There's a lot of fuzz happening at that point of sale. And to appreciate the scale of this problem, you know, if India's, you know, maybe 70, 80 billion dollars of GMV today, the market at large, and I'm counting everyone, like the horizontals, everything, probably hovers between 15 and 25% of RTO for the COD part of, for the cash on delivery part of the orders. That's how big it is. So a good 20% odd orders, even in our ecosystem, used to be much higher, actually never get delivered. They just make their way back. And it's a double-edged sword. You can't turn off cash on delivery as an option because 50 to 60% of payment option is cash on delivery in the long tail. So if you turn it off, you're just missing out this huge universe of users. If you turn it on, you got to deal with this RTO problem that could be 5% to 50%, depending on what you did. You run bad Facebook ads, you have high RTO because you got all of this unintentful buyers. You use a bad courier partner, you're screwed. You have bad addresses, you're screwed. It's really difficult to grapple with this kind of problem. And we obviously knew this very early on and started to at least work on the carrier side because they were our partners. We were able to build a ton of intelligence, ton of workflows. And now, of course, we are building it as a native part of the problem where we are fundamentally baking it back into everything that we do to kind of eradicate this problem for the long term. That's the nature of this beast. And imagine any product or service that can even shave off like 2% in absolute of this problem. It's a huge bottom line impact. It can actually mean survival or not for some of the independent businesses because it's a direct bottom line hit. We help with a variety of things. We've served over 100 million consumers, a unique, and we sit on all this data where we have their past buying patterns. We know what a good address looks like in a locality. So we are able to drive several interventions where you know we'll warn the merchant, for example, that we just don't think you should ship this order. This is not going to deliver. This is our prediction. Or this address is just one, two, three. You know, or this address is definitely not going to deliver. So why do you want to pay two-way freight? Better for you to let our WhatsApp bot, for example, go and ping the consumer, ask them for a good address. And even ask them if they still want the order. Better to cancel now than to cancel at the doorstep. 
So we try and drive some simple interventions like that. And then we also measure RTO at every branch, every endpoint for every carrier we work with. And as part of our recommendation, if it is a cash on delivery order, we will tell the merchant which carrier they should use for which order given past performance. So we truly are able to make a dent at about 20% uplift in RTO. So like anybody who has RTO of 20% post ship rocket, just by plugging us in is already cruising at a 15, 16%, a huge value that gets delivered to them. Talk a little bit more about how bottoms up, how software and that intelligence engine has enabled you to successfully deliver for this long. It's almost ironic and humorous to call it a tail given it's 60 million MSMEs. But what I'm hearing pretty clearly from how you're describing RTO and how ShipRocket solves the RTO problem is there is this core component of just software and intelligence that drives the ability to know this consumer that a lot of the larger couriers or existing infrastructure just doesn't have in India. If I talk about the number of partners we integrate with, we have over 200 integrations and they're growing. And I'll tell you the various segments in which we have to integrate. So Think of us like an API factory. We just go and start pounding these out. We integrate with all of the payment players, all of the shopping cart players, all of the marketplace players, all of the inventory management players, all of the OMSs, insurance players, supply chain financing players, consumer credit players. And I haven't even come to logistics yet. So we've tried to create an operating system that basically starts from the buy button and takes it all the way through, let's say, a potentially a refund. That entire leg of the post-purchase or near post-purchase experience is in one platform today. And then we'll integrate with the entire ecosystem where we're saying, look, we can't build all of this. We can build this layer, which merchants can use to do all of this in one interface. And we'll integrate with all the carriers, all the warehouses, all the space providers. We'll power this entire workflow because we know exactly what to do when. And we have our intelligence layer because we're sitting on all of this data where I know Romine from Sahil, from Arjun, for example, and I know how they behave as a consumer. So when, let's say, we get a notification or a message, a tracking message from the carrier that says, you know, Romine said he doesn't have the cash and he's not going to take this order. Now, that could be true. But if I know that this is a great brand product and Romine has bought like 10 times in the last one month, he logs into my tracking page from his iOS device. I don't think he doesn't have cash. I think the carrier is screwing up here. We'll auto-escalate it back to the carrier saying, no, this is a true genuine buyer. You need to reattempt this delivery and we'll make it happen. Similarly, if merchants want to automate their refunds, we are now driving intelligence there saying that, you know, I don't think you should offer Sahil any return at all because he's done it eight out of 10 times he's bought. But Romin, on the other hand, high value shopper should just refund the money right now. Don't even wait to pick it up. They give them an Amazon style experience. So I think that kind of intelligence sits at various legs of the journey, whether it is in the consumer interactions or which carriers to use when, or how can the merchant reduce RTO? All of those things you know, are baked in to the platform. Our focus on not actually building or manufacturing any of the components I spoke about is the only reason we are successful and able to serve this long tail. Because think about the business model. When we aggregate this demand from the 100,000 merchants that we work with, we are powering close to $4 billion of GMV from these guys today. Now, this is a meaningful number. When we go to an insurance company and say, look, we'd like you to insure all in-transit movement on our platform, that is the only time the insurance company is willing to work with us. Because we've aggregated all of this, given it to them, it becomes meaningful to them. Had a merchant alone said, okay, I've got $100,000 of GMV, give me an insurance quote. They are not set up to work with them. So all merchants go without insurance then until they come to the ShipRocket platform. And this goes on and on with space, with the carrier networks, with everything I just described. So that's sort of how this all comes together. I think it's pretty appropriate, especially the more you describe out kind of this idea of building a bottoms up native infrastructure. I want to put a pin in that idea because I really want to explore a little bit in this conversation kind of what are the next legs of the stool. But I think there's a really actually interesting analogy to walk through at this stage of the explanation of ShipRocket because the story has played out in another market before. Another market which has had similarly fundamentally different market structure in the US and that market is China. And so we saw something similar in the Chinese market with Taobao, eBay, and EachNet. Maybe you can explain you know, what happened in the Chinese market, because I do think that's a helpful frame of reference to understanding, again, 
not only ShipRocket's positioning in the Indian market, but really in looking ahead, why there's still significant opportunity to run after. No, I think it's a great analogy. And China is different from the US, but then also different from India, but had a similar set of problems, right? They also didn't have credit and they didn't have the logistics infrastructure, the payments infrastructure, low trust, all of those things at a macro level, you know, mimic what India was like, or India is like rather. What Taobao did really well is they actually built, and again, I'm speaking from the outside, but Taobao built a tools business. They didn't build a marketplace. They said, look, build your storefront. I'm going to give you chat. I'm going to give you payments. I'm going to give you all these value adds, but building the storefront is free. Just build it. Eventually, I'll give you ways to build demand. I'll bring in organic traffic and so on. And then you can advertise. So pay me for advertising, pay me for shipping, pay me for payments, pay me for trust. And that's how they monetize, not sort of saying, look, pay me everything and I'll figure out what to do, which is sort of the Amazon model. And in many ways, this unbundling is what works because it is not one size fits all. So that's fundamentally what we are doing is to say, look, I'm going to unbundle parts of this e-commerce transaction, make it available for everyone so that it starts to kind of drive trade and commerce in this universe of the market. And it's not limited to sort of being able to sell only on a horizontal marketplace. Now, again, we can talk about the components that we're thinking of building over a period of time. But fundamentally, you know, it's amazing how Taobao built this for China because that was the need of the hour in China. That's what the merchants and the consumers to some extent need. They wanted the width of supply. They wanted no middlemen in between. They wanted the lowest price. They wanted access this catalog digitally and they wanted to do it on the mobile. And I think Taobao did over a series of evolutions capture that extremely well. We have a similar journey where we've started by saying, look, some parts have leapfrogged also from China, where we've adopted this weird, like, like we've got parts of WeChat on Facebook and Instagram, but then we don't have the rest. And then Facebook doesn't want to do the rest because they're advertising. There's all kinds of interesting things happening. There's a great opportunity for somebody to say, okay, well, what about the rest? Someone's got to build the rest of the infrastructure. Where is India's buy with Prime for the direct commerce part of the market? Like, where is that? And that's very exciting if you think about the opportunity and the potential that lies ahead of that. It's a huge opportunity. And not just India. This is true for a lot of emerging countries even now. I think in the Taobao situation, what was interesting to me is in comparing it to your story, in both cases, the demand part or kind of latent demand wasn't really the issue in either country. It was the infrastructure and it was the unlock or the tools to be able to actually unlock that latent demand, actually service the customer. The byproduct of building the business like you guys are building becomes particularly interesting too. You alluded to it a little bit. You start to service this central utility. So if you look at the entire ecosystem, you start to see that ShipRocket ends up being the center in that ecosystem for all of these different players. Talk a little bit more about how when you look ahead and you think about kind of now, what are the next pieces? What are the next legs of the stool to build? The business is doing great. You guys have raised a multi-billion dollar valuation. More importantly, you've broken kind of hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. So the business is really working. And from a qualitative perspective, you really understand the core consumer and the core players in the ecosystem. It seems like now is actually the really interesting inflection point in the business and in the ecosystem. Just tell me a little bit more about how you're thinking about that. You know, for us, the aspiration always was to build the infrastructure. When we built ShipRocket, we were very clear, which is why we never actually entered into building the shipping ourselves. Like I said, that's a different business. For us, it was about building this highway where all kinds of things could happen. Others could drive and, you know, different things could happen. But they had to go through our toll gate, if you will. And the only way to do that is by embedding everywhere. You have to embed with every supplier, every consumer, every merchant and basically be present everywhere. What's great about shipping is, as I said earlier, goods have to move no matter what happens. Goods got to move. If you become the default gateway through which goods are going to touch and move, that's a great place to be. And as you said, we are somewhere, I feel like getting to that point or at least early to that point where we start to think about saying, okay, it looks like we are somewhat gaining traction on that front. And as we were doing that, we started then recognizing that there are larger merchants in the market as well, you know, and their needs are slightly different from the smaller merchants. The larger merchants want same day delivery. They want next day delivery. They want to lower their logistics costs much more drastically. They want to be able to offer trust to their consumers. They want to be able to build higher converting storefronts and so on. 
especially when it comes to post-purchase experience of the consumer, which is what got us to launch our fulfillment center offering, which came about two years ago. You know, today we have about 50 fulfillment centers, nearly a million and a half square feet that we power. All of the tech is ours. All of the processes are ours. None of the people are ours. None of the space is ours, right? So we do it in a similar fashion. They are partners who we integrate, work with, but orchestrate the whole thing, kind of like FBA, where we'll manage the show end-to-end and it's a fraction of the cost on what merchants might be paying Amazon. And I think the next natural step from here for us is to actually start getting into the checkout because, you know, if you think about a transaction on Amazon, when you're sitting on that buy button, you see a bunch of information. You see when you get this item, there is inherent trust on Amazon because you're logged in. They have your address. They deliver when they say they'll deliver. And if it is indeed five days away, then they'll tell you it's five days away. So as a consumer, you can decide what you want to do. And if you want it hyper fast, you may have to be a prime subscriber or pay more and so on. And it's a no questions asked return. And honestly, from India being a convenience shopping market or a price sensitive shopping market, it has become an experience shopping market where a lot of the consumers today don't want to deal with the hassle of saying, look, it might be 5% cheaper, but I can't go through this hassle anymore because this is no longer novelty. This is utility. This is how I shop. So as this market on the consumer side matures, merchants who are trying to build a presence outside of the three the horizontal marketplaces, they need a similar stack as well. They're today losing out because consumers inherently don't trust them. A lot of consumers, in fact, opt for COD because they don't know if it'll come. So if you could just build trust on that buy button saying, look, it'll come and it's not going to be counterfeit and it won't be broken and they can be return guarantee and you smoothen out the checkout process, give them a logged in session, give them a, you know, so it really starts to mimic what's happening. And honestly, everything leading up to the buy point, like I said, one is unstructured, two is already dominated by the global players, you know, because up until that point, it's a pure bits journey and bits can travel globally really fast. So you've got Facebooks, you've got Google, you've got Shopify, you've got all of the global guys innovating, building stuff around there which are doing well. It's working, right, for merchants. But the moment you get into the real world where you have to look into atoms, you have to look at where this item is lying. Is it lying in a warehouse? We power. Is it lying in a warehouse that the merchant runs? How soon does the merchant pack their stuff? Can we give a guarantee to the buyer? Can we give a date of promise to the buyer? And so on. It starts to break down. So most websites in India today who are not on ShipRocket would just say ships in five to seven days, period. That's it. There is no post-order support. It's pretty broken. I mean, think about it. On one end, Amazon's built like the nearly the US experience on their India storefront. And then you've got all of these Shopify websites that don't really do any of that. So I think that to us is the next evolution for the company to say, look, how do we now get the payment guys together, the consumer credit guys together, the BNPL guys together, the bank offers, you know, how do we build all of this stuff into our buy button that we power and then start to drive all of these conversions and trust making in the process and then how do we keep more and more of the goods for our merchants with us so we can start also offering guarantees because we need control to be able to say that you're not going to get something which is broken or torn or counterfeit and so on that's kind of the next big step for for shiprocket as we think about where this will go and you know we see no reason for us to not be able to power every transaction that's happening off marketplace in india And as you scale and you continue ahead, how do you think about kind of the tension of vertical integration, which is kind of what you're describing, right? Which makes sense, start to control and own each of the pieces of the stack or the transaction. How do you think about the tension of vertical integration, which makes sense conceptually and as a business model without building out a ton of capital intensive infrastructure? This is a question we constantly ask ourselves, less now, but early days, you know, we constantly think that, oh, I'm facing all of these quality issues. Maybe I should become the supplier myself and just do this, do this the Amazon way or whatever. And we still ask it sometimes because it is an option. But here's how we think. If we are thinking for the next 10 to 20 years, and we fundamentally believe that the ecosystem is going to keep developing, different players will keep emerging, who will keep solving the actual vertical problem in their own vertical, then either we pick a vertical and say that, look, this is all we'll do and we'll just become the best at it. Or we continue in the OS layer and say, look, I'm just going to keep plowing in the best provider, the newest provider, the most flexible provider, whatever it is, make it available at large to this long tail and huge base of merchants that we power. So for us, that flywheel, actually, we've seen it evolve. 
even in the last five years, we've seen improvements and additions in the provider network. And for us, it's just important to get embedded in the transaction for the merchant. Whether we take a step forward or backward, the model will continue to be what it is, at least today, right? The way we look at it, if we decide at some point, consumer credit is a big need in the market. One option is that, oh, we should build our own consumer credit engine and start a vertical and just put it out there. The other is that, look, there's great providers that are doing this. They just don't serve this segment of the merchant. We should get into an active partnership with them and work with them to be able to power our platform for the consumers coming on to our platform for our merchants and make it work. We continue to think on that model, you know, while we continue capturing more and more value from the transaction as it flows through us, how we decide to power it, at least today, our belief is that we would rather power it at an arm's length where there is a manufacturer who's kind of power or actually deliver that particular service while we continue to be the face to the merchant, we continue to be the, the gateway and the merchant gets everything in one place. So at some point, once we hit even more critical mass, does it make sense? I don't know, maybe. But that depends on how quickly the ecosystem evolves. And it is very much an ecosystem play because that fundamentally is the problem where people are building great things, but just access is poor, integrations are poor, and workflows are not existent. I want to round out the conversation on actually this concept and pull it back you know, to a 50,000 footer conceptual question. This idea of what you're describing to me of how does the ecosystem continue to develop, I think is a very central question actually for most Indian startups and Indian businesses. There's this concept you know, in Silicon Valley of building an N of one company. It's a common phrase basically to use it to describe a technology business that's fundamentally created and or reshaped the industry. We talked at length in this discussion about how ShipRocket is doing that for e-commerce and in India. To me, the country itself, India, has had an interesting inflection point. How do you think about the opportunity set N of one companies for N of one companies in India going forward? I think India is at a great time just in general. Like Think about the growing GDP, the ability to pay adoption on digital. Look at UPI. It's crazy just how things are evolving and the pace at which they're evolving. Also, if you look at the journey in the last 15, maybe 20 years, let's talk about India tech. India tech meant in the beginning, it just meant call center and will run your process for customer support or whatever soon turned into we can code for you because we've got a bunch of engineers. You've got a bunch of requirements and we'll build your products for you. That then five to 10 years ago became, we'll now build similar products X of Y for India One, which is now I think in the step where we're saying, oh, hold on, we can actually build for ourselves. And there is consumption, there is distribution. You know, we've got like six, 700 million active smartphone with internet connections, probably going to hit a billion soon. 5G just got launched in India. We've got a huge English speaking population. Very savvy, very entrepreneurial set of consumers, very aspirational consumers as well. Very, very young population, rising middle class. There's a bunch of things happening that the next step from here, by the way, is that, oh, we not only did we build it for India, but now this can actually be applied to other parts of the world too. It's a full cycle reversal in many ways. If you think about the trend line here, and that is what is so exciting overall about India. I don't think X or Y is any more going to work. Even the X of Ys that have worked, to be honest, they've definitely had to localize a lot. Even like McDonald's, forget startups. So I think the access to capital is a big reason as well. Now there is capital chasing fundamental first principle problem first approaches, right? Which are built for India. Yes, there will be failures. There will be things that don't work out, but it always boosts the ecosystem to the next level, right? Someone builds something, doesn't work. But now that learning is there in the ecosystem and the overall ecosystem moves forward. And I think that cycle is finally begun where I think there's going to be a ton of N of 1 companies coming out of India because finally we are building for our domestic market and we are building only for the domestic market without really thinking about, well, what's happening in the other parts of the world, whether it's agri or edtech or fintech or health tech. A lot of the stuff that's happening now is actually just like, oh, we've never heard of this. This is great. This is so much for India. We recently came across this marketplace for cattle trading through WhatsApp. 
huge market. It's a hundred billion dollar GMV market in India that now people are trying to structure. And now this is truly like coming grounds up from India. So there's a lot of stuff happening around that. And I think next 10 years, this will be a like a trivial thing that, oh, of course, that was bound to happen. That's my view. I agree. It's really exciting to watch at the pace of how things are changing. It's amazing, right? I mean, just looking at the last 10 years of your journey of building Cart Rocket to Ship Rocket and seeing all the change in between, a lot of the changes that have enabled a company like ShipRocket to exist are those fundamental pieces from the bottoms up also that are happening. Things like Geo, UPI, Aadhaar Card for Trust, you know, et cetera. And so it's going to be a really interesting story to play out. Sile, this was a ton of fun. I'm so glad we got to spend a little over an hour together here and really educated me and the listeners on how to think about e-commerce appropriately in India. So I really appreciate the time and thanks for coming on. Oh, I love being on and thank you so much, Romine, for having me. Pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. To keep learning about the topics discussed, head to joincolossus.com, where you'll find our curated list of resources, a transcript for this episode, and a library of conversations on investing and business. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. Mm-hmm.